You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. On this episode, we are going to be rejoined by Dr. Jim Dubofsky with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. He's the Central Flyway Representative, and he, he works out of the Division of Migratory Bird Management. Uh, Jim's going to be rejoining us to continue our discussion about the point system as, a, as one of the important pieces of our history of waterfowl harvest management, one of those rather unique and often talked about harvest management uh, or regulatory alternatives that some of our listeners will be familiar with. And so we're going to get back into a discussion of it. Jim, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Mike. Glad to be back. Now, we we left off the previous episode having introduced some of the challenges to the point system. We talked briefly also about uh, hunter attitudes towards the point system. We're going to get back into that here in a moment, talk about some of the manager attitudes and even law enforcement attitudes uh, towards the point system. But I want to I kind of back up and talk about something that, that we, uh, we also said we were going to discuss here at the very beginning, which is, relates to the sex-specific nature of the points assigned to some species. So perhaps to start with, uh, and this would also be something that's useful for those that those people that may not be familiar with the point system. Give us some examples. Uh, these varied through the years, I think you'll tell us, but just give us some examples of the points assigned to different uh, species and sex combinations. Sure. Uh, well, the the more abundant species, at least as uh, as indexed by our May breeding population survey, tended to have lower point values. So, species like uh, like teal 
and at the time, pintails and other species that were were fairly abundant and where we had indications where the pressure, harvest pressure on those species were were fairly low. Uh, They had low point values, typically 10 points. Uh, For the species where we had more concern about them, uh, we had higher points. And in particular, for a number of years, we had a lot of concern about the status of canvasbacks and redheads. So those birds were giving were given either 90 or 100 points in, in many years of the point system. And then you had some species that kind of fell in the middle, and mallards were one of those, where uh, typically the, the males were anywhere from 25 to 35 points, and females may range from uh, 70 to 90 points. Um, so it, it, the, the points were, were based generally on abundance and, uh, relative harvest pr- uh, pressure amongst the different species and sexes of birds. Jim, one of the questions that uh, we occasionally get or that one of the comments that we often hear, uh, whether it be within Ducks Unlimited or whether we're, when we're hunting with some of our friends uh, and colleagues out in the field relates to this idea of the sex-specific restrictions, of course, under our conventional bag system that we have right now, at least in the Mississippi Flyway. Um, you can shoot four mallards, no, no more than two of which can be hens. Uh, so we have that kind of sex-specific differentiation. And uh, people oftentimes uh, wonder, uh, what do we really know about the effect of this differential um, harvest by sex? Um, or maybe I should say, what do we know about yeah, the effect on on the population of whether we harvest drakes versus hens. And and so this is really borne out in, in the way some of the points were assigned under the point system, as you talked about, with hens being, I mean, the, the same trend occurs where we're more restrictive on the hens than the drakes if there is a sex-specific uh, regulation. And uh, I know some of why that would be seems fairly obvious, but the point system gives us a unique opportunity to kind of talk about this uh, what what do we know, Jim, as waterfowl managers about the effect of drake harvest versus hen harvest? And then how how do we translate that to any of the sex-specific uh, regulations that we have nowadays or historically? Yeah, a very good question. And um, a lot of it, I think, is rooted more in culture than in, in real hard data for any uh, type of harvested animal that you have out there. Uh, as you know, uh, if you hunt other species, we have things like uh, for pheasant seasons in at least portions of the Midwest when I was growing up, you couldn't shoot females at all. You could only shoot the roosters. Um, we also had uh, doe restrictions for deer. Uh, you could only shoot bucks uh, in in many cases for many years. So I think there's this this uh, culture of not shooting the females because we all know that although you need to have males in order to produce young, um, they obviously perform an important function. It's really the females that produce and tend to the young and and, and uh, produce the birds that are going to be in the fall flight in the case of ducks. So there's always been this culture of of directing harvest pressure away from the females with the expectation that uh, if you have more hens out there, you should expect more birds to be produced in the fall and therefore more birds available to be hunted. Um, 
as in terms of the actual data, uh, that gets a little more complicated. Um, we do know that harvest pressure, at least from our banding data, suggests that harvest pressure on females generally is lower than it is on males. Uh, but we also know that, that females undergo a lot more mortality during the summer uh, compared to males. Uh, so uh, I think that a lot of this is based in culture, but it does have some real-world um, likelihood that it's it's doing good things for birds. Now, in terms of what is the appropriate uh, ratio that should be considered for males to females in the bag, we just don't have that fine of, of data to determine uh, specifically what that, that ratio should be. So we tend to be, uh, along with the flyways, in fact, the flyways have been one of the big proponents of this, uh, particularly in the middle two flyways, of, of trying to keep the pressure off of females out there and, and direct them, direct the pressure as much as we can toward the males. Yeah, there have been a variety of initiatives, you know, sort of even volunteer initiatives through the years to uh, to encourage the harvest of drakes only. And I I think most hunters would agree that a uh, a strap of 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 brightly plumed drakes is much more attractive than that of a you know a mix of brown and amongst all that. So that's yet another reason to try to um, that why a lot of people will will shoot for the drakes uh, only. And so I just wanted to talk with you about that a little bit. And thank you, I thank you for bringing some uh, some more scientific insight into that particular question. I think we'll have an opportunity later on to uh, to talk with Dr. Scott Boomer about that as well in terms of what we may have learned in recent years from. Um, from any other aspect of adaptive harvest management, but wanted to touch on that with you because it is relevant to the point system. And we, I, th I think, out right now is the the January issue of the Ducks Unlimited magazine. We have an article in there related to pintails, in which we we begin that article with a little vignette down on the on the uh, coast of Texas, where we talk about pintails at that time, drake pintails being a 10-point bird, and I think the hens were like 20-point birds uh, at, at that time, or somewhere in that range. And and so, of course, on one takeaway from that is it's, it's probably hard for a lot of people to even imagine that right now, that you could harvest 10 drake pintails back at <laughs> back back in the day, where now, uh, you know, the restriction is much greater than that. So, um, but with regard to the point assigned to these, uh, whether it be individual uh, species or the individual sex within a species. I want to kind of transition back here to a discussion of the point system and some of the challenges with it or other, other aspects of it. Did we have really solid information upon which to base those differential point values, whether within a species uh, or across species? What did that look like back in the day, Jim? Well, remember uh, at the time that a lot of this was starting up uh, in the in the early to mid '60s, uh, we had the May Waterfall Survey that started officially in 1955. We had the wing collection information that started in the the early '60s, and we had band recovery information, but uh, we really didn't have the tools like we do today to analyze the data the way we currently do. Uh, and so in looking through all the documents uh, that, that I reviewed for this, I, I couldn't find anything that, that really did a lot of analyses to uh, determine what the, the most appropriate point values were. 
Uh, and in fact, that was one of the criticisms of the point system at the time was that we really didn't have a lot of good information for the vast majority of the species out there. We had pretty good abundance information, but that was about it. So I, I have a feeling that probably a lot of the point levels that were or were given to the individual species and sexes were based primarily on the abundance of the birds and uh, as we talked about earlier, uh, uh, lower limits on some females in order to try and protect some of those uh, more important species in the harvest. Um, so that that would be my thought is is that the uh, it was primarily the abundance from the May survey that was driving that. And and if you look at the point values that were out there, generally the more abundant birds tended to have lower point values. Jim, you shared a file with me. Uh, at- leading up to this this recording and and I didn't realize the degree of variation that occurred among some of the points assigned to species. I mean we're talking like 10 points and then some were 15 points and maybe 35 points and 30 points and so you have all these basically increments of 5 points and so yeah it seems like I mean, even today, I don't know that we would have the information to justify from a scientific perspective, well, this species is worth 35 points and the other is worth 25 points or 30 points. So uh, just that, that your answer there does not surprise me. And, and so I just wanted to touch on that. I want to shift back to a discussion of, of sort of attitudes towards the point system. We've talked about hunter attitudes already. But but there are other uh, constituents involved in this effort that whose uh, whose opinions and attitudes really matter a lot. Those being the the managers, the harvest managers, as well as law enforcement. So, share with us what you can about uh, what we know from either the, the data collected or any of our conversations that we had back in the day with regard to manager attitudes as well as law enforcement attitudes. Well, as far as manager attitudes, remember that as we discussed that there was a real interest in trying to provide as much opportunity to the hunters as was possible while still sustaining the uh, the duck populations at, at certain levels. Uh, again, that is the Fish and Wildlife Service's primary responsibility is sustainable populations of birds over time. But within that that um, limit, uh, trying to provide for as much opportunity as we can. So. The the managers generally liked the point system because they felt that uh, we had enough information to allow that additional opportunity without jeopardizing any of the the species out there. And if we could make the hunters happy, then we would continue to get the support of hunters and other groups out there that we were doing the right thing. So I think largely the the administrators tended to support the. Uh, the point system as well. The the only group really that that had a strong opposition to the point system was the law enforcement folks, and it was largely due to their enforcement concerns. Essentially, they they couldn't they felt that they couldn't could never make uh, any citations on overbagging stick where reordering occurred because they simply didn't have the information or weren't confident enough in their information to be able to make those cases stick. Essentially, they felt that we, that the regulations and, and uh, lawfulness was, was at the mercy of the ethics of individual hunters, and, and they were concerned about that. Um, and they felt that any regulation that uh, required an order of take uh, aspect to it couldn't be 
enforced. Essentially, they would have to have an individual in the blind with the hunter to be able to be certain of the order and the species of birds that were taken. Um, outside of that, uh, there just wasn't enough good information to uh, make any cases stick. And some of the uh, courts who uh, wrote in about the point system at the time said that that would be a major problem for them as well in terms of, of adjudicating cases. I found it interesting in my reading leading up to this uh, this discussion that somewhere in one publication, it might have been actually the one that you co-authored, some of the surveys of hunters revealed uh, a dislike for the point system by hunters because of the belief that it encouraged violations, which is an interesting thing in, in sort of hunters sort of policing ourselves from uh, from some sort of a moral uh, perspective there. So I wasn't aware of that and had not really uh, considered that, but I found that interesting. And so what also, I, I guess, squarely within some of these same concerns is maybe an issue of wanton waste with regard to the point system. Did that come up in some of the conversations or maybe some of the concerns? Yes, it was. And uh, there wasn't a, a lot of indications from field work that uh, it was it was a, a huge problem, but certainly there were observations made out there where hunters would would shoot a number of birds and then uh, only retrieve certain ones of them, and they, they typically retrieve the, lo the lower point birds so that they could have a, a higher bag limit back in the, in the blind. Part of the real problem with this, too, is that in a lot of hunting situations, number one, you have uh, multiple hunters in a blind, but also uh, hunters don't really want to go out uh, and retrieve birds if the shooting's good. So what you tend to get in some cases are are a number of birds being downed uh, before they're ever uh, gone before they folks go out and, and retrieve them and bring them back and identify them. So that was another thing that that uh, enforcement folks pointed out as well that uh, the the point system relied on retrieve uh, on shooting a bird retrieving it identifying it determining the point value and then continuing on if you have a number of birds that are down due to a good shooting situation uh, it it could lead to problems and and that's probably where more of the wanton waste occurred where you had a number of down species and if there were some high point ones out there you just um, the, the hunter may just say well I'm, it's I'm not going to pick that one up Moving a bit more into some of the evaluations of the point system, we've kind of touched already here on some of the hunter uh, and previously some of the hunter attitudes towards the point system. There, there was also some very real need to evaluate the effectiveness of the point system in achieving, in achieving some of the other objectives, one of which was trying to direct harvest pressure away from high point birds, those those birds uh, that we thought needed some protection from harvest pressure because either they're a low population size or the hen drake thing, we get into some uh, discussion there about which one is more important for for annual production. So, uh, but nevertheless, the objective there, as you talked about previously, was to redirect uh, pressure away from some of those high point birds. What did our evaluations tell us in terms of the effectiveness of the point system in achieving that objective? Well, again, on, on that aspect, the the uh, results were kind of mixed. It tended to look like the more restricted studies that were done, like in the San Luis Valley and perhaps at Shiawassee and, and some other areas, uh, where the mix of birds was such 
that uh, the hunters could effectively shoot drakes over hens, that there was some indication that that did occur. Uh, however, as you scaled that up to either statewide analyses or even flywide anal- flyway-wide analyses, it appeared that those uh, that direction of harvest toward the lower point birds uh, or males uh, didn't. It, it kind of fell apart. Uh, there wasn't as strong, or in fact, uh, no evidence that that direction of of harvest pressure occurred. We've we also talked a minute ago about sort of hunter attitudes toward towards it, and some of the attitudes were were I guess came about because of a belief that this point system would would tempt hunters uh, into violations. What did our evaluations tell us with regard to hunter compliance? I think we may have touched on this already, but I just want to make sure we cover from some of the formal evaluation aspects. What did we learn regarding hunter compliance? Well. Generally, it, it revolved around reordering, which, as I mentioned, was a, a very tough case to, to make. But uh, it did look like there was a, a large potential, for, potential at least, for reordering in many cases. And uh, in some undercover cases, it appeared that uh, reordering was, in fact, an issue. Again, in some areas, this wasn't a widespread issue, but in some areas, it, it could be. And uh, there was this concern that, yes, and we were promulgating regulations that uh, one provided an incentive uh, through a larger bag uh, to to reorder birds. And uh, they they also the hunters also uh, probably knew that the likelihood of, of being able to detect that reordering was low. So um, I, I think that was a, a real issue. And, and again, it did come out in our our enforcement. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina ProPlan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Enforcement officers' concerns. 
Let's move now to a bit of a, a wrap-up with regard to the, the point system. This is going to involve a discussion about uh, when it was no longer offered. We've you, you mentioned this at the outset. You provided that date, but I believe it was 1994. And you know this, this decision wasn't just made off the cuff. My understanding is there was a, an evaluation task force that was brought into existence to look critically at what we were learning with regard to the point system. Can you talk a bit about that? Who, what was the makeup of that task force in terms of federal, state uh, representatives, and kind of how? What did that task force and its its work look like? Yeah, there was a task force that was put together in the in the early 1970s, and and the the composition of that task force was uh, a representative from each of the three flyways experimenting with the point system, um, and a representative from law enforcement a representative from an outside conservation agency. In this case, I believe it was the Wildlife Management Institute. And then research representatives from the Bureau of Sport, Fish, and Wildlife, which was uh, the precursor, of course, to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And and the individuals that they selected came from the Patuxent Wildlife Research Center and the Northern Prairie Wildlife Research Center. So, yeah, that group got together several times, looked over all the information that was available up to that point. Again, this was the early 70s, so uh, only a few years of information and and from a few sites, really. Uh, and they came up with a, with a number of recommendations uh, to move forward with the point system. Uh, and I think largely uh, they, they uh, were not um, strongly followed up on. Uh, but those included uh, that at the time they felt that there really wasn't enough information to move forward at a flyway level with the point system. Uh, most of the information was uh, from rather small geographic areas or or from individual states, a few individual states. Uh, as we touched on, they, they felt that we needed much better data on which to base decisions um, on in terms of what the, the point values were. Uh, they also, because of the, the reordering problem and the potential for impacts on some stocks of birds uh, that we couldn't measure, they suggested reducing the, uh, the discrepancy uh, between what could be allowed under the, the point system and the conventional bag. And so uh, make the, the point system maximum bag limit around six birds instead of 10 like it, it was. Um, and uh, they, they also said that based on what they had at that point, that they probably should come up with some criteria where the point system should be implemented. And in other cases where those criteria wouldn't be met or couldn't be met, that maybe we shouldn't uh, use a point system in those areas. Because there was some information that it did work well in some cases. The trick then was to find out, okay, why is it working in those areas and maybe not in others? And can we come up with some criteria to better, to, to use that tool more effectively in certain, in certain cases? Jim, something just occurred to me as we're talking about this, and I'm thinking back about our conversations with Ken Babcock and Dale Humberg. We talked with Ken and Dale about stabilized regulations, and stabilized regulations experiment overlapped the availability of the point system, if I'm getting my dates correct. Um, am, I, am I correct that the stabilized regulations overlapped point system availability, and within that stabilized regs experiment, are we talking about having 
you know, stabilize the points across years of that experiment? Is that what was happening or am I getting my dates off? Um, you're correct in that the, the stabilized regulations period did overlap with the years that the point system was available. Uh, and I think at least up until 1987, uh, they tried to keep the point values fairly stable uh, through that time frame to, to test the hypotheses that they set out at the time. Uh, as 1988 rolled around and the drought continued to intensify, I think there was more pressure and perhaps some uh, modification of point values to uh, further protect some stocks because there was concern given the, the habitat conditions out there that um, even with the or if we continued even with the levels of bag limits that we had, it it might be detrimental to the population. I, I'd have to go back and, and check that specifically, but um, I think that's the case. Thank you for that, Jim. There's a lot of moving parts in the harvest management discussion. I've learned a lot uh, through through these series of episodes. I hope our listeners have too. And, and so the more I learn, the more I'm kind of piecing together these dates and the different things that were going on. So I just wanted to kind of connect the dots between those things that we've talked about, sort of the stabilized regulations and how it would have interacted with some of the decisions in the point system. So thank you for that. Let's move on here before we close out and talk about the final years of the point system. We've referenced previously that it was discontinued in 1990, uh, I'm sorry, 1988. Uh, and then re-offered in, in a various form, but then formally closed out or, or uh, withdrawn as an option in 1994, incidentally, which was immediately prior to adaptive harvest management coming on the scene. What uh, there, I think there was, might have been a review in the early 90s with regard to the point system that might have led to some of those changes and decisions. Can you talk about that a bit, Jim? Sure, uh, and, and you're exactly right. Um, based on that uh, task force report that came out in the 70s, obviously there was there was still a lot of interest in the point system and a lot of people interested in looking at different ways to evaluate the point system. So over the, the years after the 1970s, as more information became available and, and new tools and techniques for analyzing data became available, uh, various uh, entities looked at the data to try to uh, better ferret out what the true impacts of the of the point system on duck populations and, and harvest were. Uh, and it wasn't only uh, the, the states and the flyways and the, the Fish and Wildlife Service who were looking at this. There were also university researchers that uh, got their hands on harvest and band recovery information and uh, also tried to analyze it uh, independently, if you will. So a number of those investigations went on uh, during those years post-1970 up through 1988 when you mentioned that the uh, the service suspended the point system out of concern for the low duck populations that we saw on the prairies. So with that suspension, then, uh, the service undertook a review of all the different special regulations that we had at the time, including the point system, special teal seasons, special scop seasons, bonus bird seasons, uh, and so on. And uh, so they took, really took a, a critical look at all the information that was available up through that time. And in 1990, uh, they came out with the results of that review and the service, the stated that they felt there was a lack of evidence that it was achieving the objectives that were set. And that combined with the the problems with enforcement 
uh, kind of led the, the Fish and Wildlife Service in to say that uh, we we can continue with the point system, but because of these concerns, it shouldn't be any more liberal than the conventional bag limit, which of course uh, was was um, one of the advantages of the point system was it did offer a potentially a larger bag limit than the than the conventional bag limit. Uh, so there was there was that review and that policy then stayed in those regulations stayed in place from 1990 through 1993 at which time the flyways asked the service to conduct another review of its policy with any additional information that uh, may have come forward uh, since the the review in 1990 and the the service did so honored that request from the flyways and they decided to uphold their earlier decision made in 1990 uh, to um, to effectively eliminate the point system as a as a regulation that uh, could be considered by the flyways and they they specifically mentioned a few items in that last report that really didn't change from the 1990 report but uh, I'll read them off here uh, kind of uh, annotated uh, there was little evidence that the point system was more effective than the conventional bag limit system at redirecting harvest not that there wasn't some evidence, but there there wasn't uh, overwhelming evidence that it was a better system at re- redirecting harvest. There were major problems uh, remaining with determining what the appropriate species and sex-specific point values for the birds were. Uh, if there were any species closures, like we had periodically for canvasbacks and, and uh, maybe a couple other critters out there, it eliminated the bird in hand adv- identification advantage of the point system. And then finally, that reordering remained a problem and, and essentially was unenforceable. So the, uh, the service decided at that point that uh, we should discontinue offering that as a bag limit option and they but they did acknowledge that most of the problems were in application uh not in the concept of the point system it's it's a very good concept uh in terms of of allowing hunters uh, maximum opportunity while still maintaining good populations of birds but uh there were certain aspects of it that that they felt were detrimental enough that it we shouldn't offer it anymore you know jim i i've there's a certain bit of nostalgia for me that comes along with the discussion of the point system. It certainly was a, a a creative system, a valuable system in concept, as you talked about there. But from a nostalgic standpoint, discussions around it take me back to my childhood, uh, recalling my dad talk about the points and, and he knew how many I just I remembered him needing to know the importance of birds and the different points assigned uh, to them. So uh, I, I don't know how many other people, how many other listeners out there kind of feel a bit of nostalgia in, in the point system conversation, but it certainly is that way for me. And I've appreciated the conversation here to uh, the, the opportunity to talk about it and, and learn a bit more about it. I never really looked into much of the history of the point system. So uh, appreciate your insight on this, Jim. And and yeah, it's it's another example of the way that we think about harvest regulations, the different systems that we can put in place to to manage that, and then of course the application of science to evaluate the effectiveness and and 
uh, appropriateness of those regulations. I want to give you, Jim, uh, an opportunity here in closing to offer any any thoughts of, about the point system. Where does it stand in terms of sort of being an example of the way we learn, the way we try different things, and our application of science? You know, when you think about it, what comes to mind, and what do we? What are some of the lasting lessons uh, from the point system? Well, thanks, Mike. And um, I guess I'd like to, if I could, expand a little bit beyond just the point system and uh, talk more about how we approach uh, new regulatory alternatives or packages or, or uh, opportunities as the, the Fish and Wildlife Service and as the management community. And, and I'll, I'll preface this with that these are my thoughts. I'm not espousing the uh, the feelings necessarily of the the Division of Migratory Bird Management, who I work for, the service. But uh, over the years, uh, like you mentioned, I'm kind of long in the tooth, and uh, um, I, I've had a, a number of of good discussions about this uh, with with peers and colleagues. And so these are are kind of my thoughts on on how we should approach these types of investigations in general. And I guess my feeling is that the, the past evaluations of a number, number of issues, including the point system, but not exclusive to that, there's uh, many other things like zones and splits and framework date extensions and additive and compensatory hunting mortality, uh, generally had been lacking in statistical rigor and, and a lot, at least a lot of the early work was, was fairly uh, simplistic analyses and, and um, in some cases, not a, not a good experimental design. Uh, and I'm not being over, or I'm not trying to be critical of the, the people who did that work or questioning their abilities. Uh, the bottom line is we're looking at things now in the 21st century and all the tools that we have, and we're looking back 50 to 60 years on some of these things. And those, a lot of those things just weren't available. And remember, we were just beginning to build up a time series of, of data on, on waterfowl populations. And certainly we didn't have the computers and statistical programs and, and so on that we have now back in, in the day. Um, also, I think that uh, there was a feeling that probably not as much statistical rigor was needed because we weren't in the spotlight as much as we are probably with contemporary society. Uh, there's a lot more people looking at us and, and are demanding a lot more scrutiny in our decisions than perhaps occurred back then. And um, we also have to recognize that that there are social constraints whenever we want to try something new. Uh, and by that, I mean that in order to truly test something and have a, a good experiment and experimental design, as you know, we have to have treatments and controls. And to do that properly and, and get really good inference to make decisions, uh, what that may mean is that we'd have to forego some short-term opportunity in harvest to learn as much as we can in a relatively short period of time to make a good decision. And there's just not a lot of appetite out there, at least there hasn't been, uh, to forego that opportunity in order to learn something that will help us manage better in the long run. So experimental, true experimental designs, I think, are, are difficult to accomplish in the, the waterfowl management world uh, because of those reasons. And then probably the last thing is that these experiments or evaluations are, are very data hungry, uh, generally to get 
those good results. And as we try to get more refined in how we manage birds, it becomes more costly in terms of resources and time needed to conduct the appropriate experiments. So all these things are, are out there today. They've been there uh, with us ever since we started trying to do this management. And uh, we, we have a difficult time then providing decision makers with truly definitive results. Um, and in my career, I've seen it on many issues. We have a lot of different data that we analyze. Uh, but in most cases, the data were collected for a different reason uh, and not the specific issue or uh, experiment, if you will, that we that we're, we're uh, contemplating. And so the the design isn't good and therefore being able to expand any results that you do get to uh, a larger area or appropriate area can be very difficult. Um, and I guess the last thing that I'll say regarding moving forward on things is that uh, I think to a large extent we're still working under the idea that maxim uh, that hunters like to maximize uh, their their opportunities out there and perhaps their harvest. And it's largely why we've got the regulations as complex as we have them today. And I, I hope, and I think we're making progress in this front that we're, we're trying to understand better what the hunters really want. Uh, is it the, the most number of birds in the bag or is it the biggest opportunity to see birds or is it something else? And I think that that is the next critical piece of this puzzle that we need to get so that we can actually craft regulations that uh, are good for the resource and are, are what makes the, the whole hunting experience the most satisfactory for, for hunters. So uh, I, I think that's where I'll leave it then, Mike. Uh, if, if I wasn't clear on any of that, I'd, I'd be glad to you know try to, to explain myself a little better. No, I think that's great, Jim. I appreciate that information, that insight uh, that you bring to this. You've certainly been doing this for um, well, for a number of years, closing in on the, the twilight of your career, as we talked about at the very outset, these experiments and new approaches and other aspects of harvest management are definitely fun to think about, to conceive, to imagine. Uh, but then you you actually shine a light on some of the uh, some of the policy limitations, you might say, in some in some respect, and certainly some social concerns that have to be taken into account also and and all those things combine as you said to make uh, to make the actual implementation of some of these uh, some of these great ideas creative ideas a bit more challenging than we might initially think they are so appreciate you sort of shining a light on some of the realities around that and and again just I'll just take a moment here to thank you for your career in this profession for all the work that you've done for your, your commitment to this resource and, and how you've kind of helped us advance the work that you've done. So, uh, and thank you for your time here on the, on this episode, these two episodes, uh, sharing your expertise. It's always fun to me to connect with friends and the fact that you, you're a busy person and you've chose, chosen some time out of your schedule to, to join us here and share some of this information. So thank you very much, Jim, for your career and for your time here on these episodes. Well, thank you very much, Mike, for the opportunity to, to share this information with, with all your listeners out there. 
A very special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. Jim Dubofsky, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's Central Flyway Representative out of the Division of Migratory Bird Management. We appreciate his time and insights on, on the point system. It's been a fun conversation. As always, we thank our producer, Clay Baird, for the work he does on these podcasts. And to you, the listener, we thank you for your time, and we thank you for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside.